0: You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. Such a great privilege to be here, a joy to be here to open God's word with you. I have to say that I love your pastor so much. Pastor Robbie's a dear friend of mine. He is a special man. He has a special call on his life, and I count it a great privilege and an honor to call him my friend I love the elders of this church. I love the staff of this church. I love the people of this church. We love you very much, church family, and we are so glad to be here with you. And I mean that we are a family. So, why don't we pray before we go to God's word together? Let's do that. Father, we pray right now in the name of Jesus Christ for power today power for me to preach, but also power, Lord, for your people to hear, to respond, to be changed. Lord, I pray that what you find for yourself in this room today are hearts that are receptive, hearts that are soft, hearts that are tender, hearts that will receive with humility your truth and your word, hearts that will surrender and bow the knee to you, and hearts that will treasure you above all things. And I pray as we leave here at the end of this service, we will walk out saying, Jesus is precious to me. And I pray that you would do that by the power of your spirit through the proclamation of your word right now. In Jesus' name we pray. If you agree, say amen. 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 All right, I'm going to begin with this quote. It's going to be on the screen for you. A.W. Tozer said this, To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love. I'm going to read it again. It says, To have found God and still to pursue him is the soul's paradox of love in other words our love for god is expressed through a constant and steady pursuit of what we've already found in him it's a paradox we've found god to be loving we've found god to be forgiving We've found God to be gracious. We've found Him to be merciful. We've found Him to be compassionate. And the Christian life is a pursuit of God. These things that we've already found in Him, who He is, this is the Christian life. So far from an empty form of religiosity, Christianity is a pursuit of God. Christianity is a loving passionate pursuit of the God who first loved us. The Bible tells us that he first loved us and enables us then to love him in return, to treasure him in return, to pursue him for all that we have found him to be. The delight of our hearts, all that our hearts have ever longed for or desired is what we find in Christ and continue to pursue In Christ. And so the title of this morning's message is this uh, Two Ways of Pursuing Christ. Two Ways of Pursuing Christ. I want you to go with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 25 to 35. We're going to find a a kind of pursuing Christ in this passage, and we're going to contrast that with the way God has called us and is calling us to pursue him today in this place. So John chapter 6, 25 to 35, and it starts like this. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, "'What must we do to be doing the works of God?' Jesus said to them, "'This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent.' So they said to him, "'Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform?' Give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Here we find a record in the Gospel of John of a group of people, hundreds and thousands of people that are pursuing Jesus. They're pursuing Christ, and so I wanna show you a few things from this passage of Scripture that I think will help clarify for us what exactly is a pursuit of Christ that Christ has called us to. We're gonna start right here. Write this down. There is a way to pursue Christ, we need to know this first, that is actually self-serving and therefore unsatisfying. There is a way to pursue Christ that is actually self-serving and therefore unsatisfying. I want you to see it in verses 25 to 26 again. It says, when they found him on the other side of the sea, see they were looking for Jesus, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill.'" Of the loaves. What's going on here? Well, we have to get a better grasp on what's happening in the context, the wider context. Before we jump in to understand this, we got to understand a little bit more about John chapter 6. John chapter 6 is like a standalone chapter in the Gospel of John. There are 71 verses, full is the Gospel of John chapter 6. And everything happening in John chapter 6 is pointing to, it's moving towards who Jesus Christ is, what he's come to do, but specifically, what he's come to be for a lost and dying world. What Jesus has come to be for you and me. Why did he come? What has he come to be for me? See, he hasn't just come to do something. He's come to be something for a lost and dying world. So verses 1 to 15 of John chapter 6, We have the feeding of the 5,000. You remember that? The miraculous multiplication of food with just two fish and five barley loaves. Jesus Christ demonstrates his authority over hunger by multiplying a small bit of food to feed thousands of people. Awesome. Then in verses 16 to 21, Jesus is found by his disciples miraculously walking on the water towards his disciples. In the midst of a raging storm, he reveals himself to be authoritative over nature and over creation itself, and he calms the storm. By the time we get to verse 25, our text today, the crowds, they can't get enough of Jesus. Jesus. It's the day after now, the multiplication of the food, the feeding of the 5,000, and you have to understand hundreds and thousands of people are looking for Jesus. They're seeking Jesus. They're pursuing Jesus. Where is Jesus? They want to find Jesus. Now notice Christ's response to all of this in verses 25 to 26 again. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? They didn't know how he got there because the disciples sailed away on the boat, but he didn't go with them. And all of a sudden, he ends up on the other side of the sea. Well, they didn't realize that he had walked his way along the water to get there, so they're confused. How, how did you get here? We didn't see you get in the boat. They asked him that question. How did you come here? Notice that Jesus doesn't answer the question. Instead, Jesus answered them, verse 26, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Now, it's important for us to understand that when John uses the word signs, and he uses the word signs all throughout his gospel, he's referring to something that Jesus has done that points to the greater reality of who Jesus is. Signs don't exist for themselves, they always point somewhere, and everything Jesus did, every sign Jesus performed, was to point ultimately to the reality of who he is. But what's happening here in the text is the crowds see the sign, the feeding of the 5,000 is the sign, and they get hung up on the sign. They love the sign, they want more of the sign, but they don't see what the sign is pointing to. That's why Jesus says, you're seeking me not because you saw the sign, meaning you're seeking me because you didn't, not because you saw what the sign is pointing to, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Essentially, Jesus Christ is discerning something here in John chapter six that probably no one else sees. He's discerning that thousands of people are following him. Thousands of people are pursuing him. Thousands of people are seeking Him, but they don't really want Him. They want what He can do for them. They want what He can give to them. There's a way to pursue Christ that is self-serving and ultimately unsatisfying. On the screen for you, John Piper said this, He said, Jesus did not come into the world mainly to give bread, but to be bread. He did not come into the world to be useful, but to be precious. Oh, how many Christians receive him as useful. Or another way to put it is, Jesus Christ did not come into the world to assist you in meeting desires you already had before you were born again. He came into the world to change your desires so that he is the main one. That is the reason he came. And so, loved ones, this is a word that my heart needs to hear frequently. This is a word I believe all of us need to hear frequently, that Jesus didn't come into the world to be useful to me. Jesus didn't come into the world to be a nice supplement to my life. Jesus came into the world to radically transform my desires, Jesus came into the world to change my heart such that he becomes the object of my affection and my trust. He came into the world to be the object of my worship so that I smash all the idols that never satisfy my heart. And I find in him, in worship of him, one that satisfies the deepest longings of my heart. Everything I've ever dreamed of, everything I've ever wanted, anything my heart could ever hope for is wrapped up in the God-man. Jesus Christ. Jesus didn't come to give bread. He came to be bread. Bread that nourishes and satisfies your heart and mind. So let's go a bit deeper here for a moment and let's make this personal. Why do you pursue Jesus Christ? everyone answer in their heart for themselves why do you pursue jesus christ why are you here this morning why do you attend this church why are you part of a small group or an accountability group of some kind why do you seek christ why do you pursue him And some of you say, I'm not exactly sure, Jason. Don't know exactly how to answer that. How can I really know if I'm pursuing Christ with genuine motives or if I'm pursuing Christ from a self-serving heart? How how can I really know? Well, I want to show you a few things from the text. I want to show you three marks of a self-serving pursuit of Jesus Christ. One that always ends up with our hearts remaining unsatisfied Three marks of a self-serving pursuit of Jesus Christ from our text. Number one, write this down. A self-serving pursuit of Christ constantly tests Jesus. Constantly tests Jesus. Notice it in the text, verses 27 to 30. 27 says, do not work for the food that perishes, Jesus says. Don't go after stuff that is temporary. He says, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on Him God the Father has set His seal. Then they said to Him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in Him whom He has sent. Watch this now, verse 30. So they said to Him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? What exactly is it that you do, Jesus, that we should trust you and believe in you? What what exactly is it that the the works you're talking about, the works that you perform, what do you do? Well, let's think about this for a moment. This is important. They've just witnessed Jesus feed over 5,000 people with just two fish and five loaves. And they say, then what sign do you do, Jesus, that we may see and believe you? They're pushing him. They're pressing him. In addition to that, chapter 2 records for us Jesus miraculously turning water to wine and the word would have spread about that. Chapter 4 shows us Jesus prophetically telling a Samaritan woman all about her life and his first meeting with her. He's no ordinary man. Later in chapter 4, Jesus miraculously heals an an official's dying son. In chapter 5, Jesus heals an invalid of 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. The word would have spread. People in that crowd would have heard about the miracles Jesus had done And experienced yesterday, just yesterday, the miraculous feeding of the five thousand, and yet they ask this question: What exactly is it that you do, Jesus? That we should believe you and trust you? You see what's going on here in this text. You see what's going on here in this moment. They are challenging Jesus. They're they're testing Jesus. They're pressing Jesus for another sign, for another miracle. Maybe another meal, something else with which he can prove himself. A self-serving pursuit of Christ. It's marked by this constant testing of Jesus. Do something else, Jesus, then I'll believe in you. Show yourself in another way, then I'll believe in you. Are you really that powerful? If you're that powerful, you you'd, you'd en- enter into this part of my life that I'm really struggling in. Come on, do something. Then I'll believe you. A self-serving pursuit of Christ constantly tests Jesus. Secondly, a self-serving pursuit of Christ selfishly demands from Jesus. Selfishly demands from Jesus. Notice verse 31. They say, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So you have to understand what they're doing here. They're essentially comparing Jesus to Moses. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. Their understanding is that Moses brought down manna from heaven when they were wandering in the wilderness. You remember that? They're comparing Jesus to Moses. And they're referring to Exodus 16, where God so graciously rained down manna from heaven to care for the people of Israel. And filled with pride, they quote the scriptures, and basically what they're saying to Jesus is, you fed the multitudes only once, but Moses, our fathers, they fed our, they fed our people a day after day after day with manna from heaven. Do something else, Jesus, Jesus. Do the same thing if we're going to trust you and believe in you. Feed us every day. Do it, Jesus. Do this for me. They're testing Jesus, and they're going a step further here to demand that Jesus supply bread for them every day, just as their fathers received in the wilderness. And one of the marks, one of the sure marks of a selfish self-serving pursuit of jesus is this attitude this selfish demanding of jesus i'll know that you're god when you promote me at work do it for me i'll know that you're god when you remove the trouble from my life that i'm facing right now come on do it for me jesus I'll know that you're God when you cause me to increase materially. My neighbor just got a new car. What about me, Jesus? Come on, I'll believe you. Come on, give this to me. I'll know that you're God when you remove my cancer from me. Do it for me. Testing, demanding, challenging the precious and sufficient Savior of the world. Now, there's a distinction we need to make. It is good and right to approach God the Father and pray and make petition and request things. But here's a distinction we need to make. It is not good to approach God the Father with requests that when they're granted to us, become our God. It's not good to approach God and say, give me this, that thing that I really worship. I'm using you to give me the thing that I really worship, the thing that I really love. That's not good. That's what they're doing here. They're coming to Jesus not because of who he is and who he can be for them. They're coming to Jesus because of what he can give them, what he can do for them. And they selfishly demand and test and challenge the one who is the sufficient savior of the world, a self-serving pursuit of Christ. He constantly tests Jesus It selfishly demands from Jesus. Finally, write this down. A self-serving pursuit of Christ foolishly looks past Jesus. A self-serving pursuit of Christ foolishly looks past Jesus. Notice verses 32 to 34. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. So they don't understand yet. Notice the continual focus on the physical and temporal. They're still fixated on the physical bread that he gave them the day before, the sign, but it was designed to point to the greater reality of who Jesus is. But they're not concerned about who Jesus is, they're just obsessed with the bread. They're so hung up on having their physical hunger satisfied, they're completely missing something of much greater significance. When Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, he's essentially highlighting two fundamental errors in their thinking and in their theology. Number one, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, God did. He's correct. It wasn't Moses who gave you bread. It was my father. It was God. You're mixed up. Number two, number two, that bread could only satisfy physically and temporarily the manna that came down from heaven. It was temporary. That bread was simply a picture. That bread in the wilderness was simply a pointer. That bread was simply a type. That bread foreshadowed the true bread. Not physical bread, not temporary bread, but bread that would come down from heaven to satisfy the deepest longings of the human heart. That bread from heaven is standing in front of their faces. His name is Jesus Christ. And what they're doing, Jesus, can you just step over a little bit? We want bread. Okay, now give us the bread. But, But the bread is in front of them. But, but they're saying, Jesus, just we like you. Sit here. Bread. That's what we want. They're looking past. They're looking past Jesus foolishly when in the person of Jesus Christ in front of them is all that their hearts were designed to find joy and satisfaction in. But they're not pursuing Jesus because they want him. They're pursuing him because they want what he can give to them. This happens in our lives all the time. We look past Jesus towards our careers. We look past Jesus towards our spouse. Oh, if I could just get married to the right person, then my life will be complete. Oh, satisfaction is coming. We look past Jesus towards having children. We look past Jesus towards fun. We look past Jesus towards technology, when all the while, He who loves you and me, he who saves you and me, he who satisfies you and me is right in front of us. And we try to look past because there's something temporary, something physical we fixated on, but it's him that we need. It's him that will meet the deepest longings of our hearts. Justin and Sally, they're a beautiful couple in our church. They've been believers in Jesus Christ for many, many years. They've served Jesus Christ faithfully. They've trusted Jesus Christ faithfully. They've always been leaders in the churches that they attended and they loved the Lord. Well, early in their marriage, they began to realize that they had trouble conceiving children. It wasn't happening and, and it was a deep desire in their hearts to be parents. It was a deep desire for them to conceive. They prayed and they trusted God earnestly, but they continued to struggle with the devastation of infertility. Sally got pregnant once, but it resulted quickly in miscarriage. and. After over 10 years of fertility treatments and dashed hopes and shattered dreams, they began to yield this desire to the Lord and their hearts began to turn towards the possibility of adoption. It was a tough go for them for many years. And so they began the process of adoption. They were open to whatever the Lord had, but they had a deep desire in their hearts to get a newborn baby. They wanted to delight in raising a child from its earliest years, but they were told it's probably not going to happen. It's very unlikely in the adoption process for you to get a, a newborn baby. It's probably next to impossible. That's what they were told. One day the phone call came to them, and that which They were told is impossible, actually was becoming a reality. They were told that there was a young girl who got pregnant unexpectedly. She was going to put up her little baby girl for adoption. The baby would be born in about two months, and the girl saw Justin and Sally's profile, and she thought this couple would be a good match for this newborn baby about to be delivered. And so Justin and Sally were thrilled. This is what they'd been praying for. This is what they had hoped for. This was... God answering their prayers. All of a sudden, now they were going to get to have a newborn baby, and so they went to the hospital, and with hope filling their hearts, because this was exactly what they desired, they picked up the newborn baby girl. like They just took the baby right from the mother's arms, and they named the baby girl, and they clothed the baby girl, and They fed the baby girl, and they cared for the baby girl for five days. I remember receiving the phone call. I answered and was met with Justin and Sally on the phone, sobbing and weeping uncontrollably. I was on speakerphone, so it was hard to understand what they were saying, but I could make out these words in the midst of the sobbing and the weeping. They're they're taking her away. They're taking her away. They're taking her away. You see, with every adoption, I'm told there's a 30-day window where the biological parents can choose to change their minds and take the baby back. And that's what happened in Justin and Sally's situation all that they had prayed for over 10 years of disappointment and dreams dashed and dreams crushed and all of this culminating in the hope of a little newborn baby and now and now the baby is going to be taken away from them they were crushed that's an understatement they were devastated In total disbelief and unceasing tears and sorrow, they were forced to pack up the clothes. They packed up the formula. They packed up the diaper bag. They packed up the stroller and the bassinet and all the toys that had been gifted to them. They packed up their little newborn daughter and got in a car to drive the baby somewhere they would leave her and never to see her again. Needless to say, they went through a long season of tremendous grief and sorrow. Justin says he was so angry, so angry with God. He was so angry with God, he would fall to the ground. He tells me I would just pound my fist on the floor. Why, God? You you gave this gift to us. You answered our prayers. Why would you allow this baby to be taken away from us? You came through for us, God, and banging his fists against the ground. Justin couldn't pray anymore. There was a season where Justin couldn't read the Bible anymore. He put it aside, and he was angry More time had passed, and Justin and Sally knew deep in their hearts that God had not left them. They knew deep in their hearts that God was with them, and they began to experience God in a very new way. Justin picked up his Bible again and began praying, and he describes it to me this way, that one day there was just an overwhelming sense of peace that came upon him and Sally. An overwhelming, the pain didn't go away. It didn't get erased. The grief didn't go away. It didn't get erased. But oh, the peace that they were covered with, they can only attribute it to God. Justin says that they'd known Christ for many years, but I was talking to him on the phone a few days ago. He said, our relationship with God was like brand new. They experienced the love of God in that devastating season in a way they'd never experienced before. They'd experienced the mercy of God in a way they'd never experienced before. They'd experienced the compassion of God in a way they'd never experienced before. They experienced the bread of life in a way they'd never experienced before. Justin and Sally discovered in the moments of their darkest moments of their life, they discovered what it means that Jesus is bread for my soul. They discovered for the first time in a new way, in a brand new way, that our pursuit of Christ is for Christ. I don't pursue Christ so he gives me a daughter. I don't pursue Christ so he gives me a job. I don't pursue Christ so he gives me whatever. I pursue Christ for Christ. And in that pursuit of Christ, the heart is satisfied. There is pain in life. There's hardship in life. There's even tragedy and devastation. There's even confusion. Why do certain things happen in life but loved ones? For the believer in Jesus Christ as we see in the life of Justin and Sally, there is rest for the soul. There is satisfaction for the soul even when the walls are caving in on you in your life. And what the world needs to see, loved ones, what Oakville and Burlington and Hamilton and Mississauga, what these people all around us need to see from this church is that not that Christ is satisfying when my bank account is full and the car's in the driveway and my marriage is going well. No, what they need to see is when I'm crushed. Christ is enough. That when everything is going horribly wrong, Christ is enough. And he is my peace. And he is bread for my soul. See, the crowds in John chapter 6, they couldn't grasp this. They had their sights set on physical, temporal bread. And that's why they pursued Jesus to give them something else, there is a way then to pursue Christ that is actually self-serving and always unsatisfying. And the reason the self-serving pursuit of Christ is unsatisfying is because when I pursue Christ to give me something that I'm really worshiping over here, if I happen to get that thing, when it fails me, not if, when it fails me, my heart ends up crushed. My heart ends up devastated. My heart ends up in despair because that which I've put my hope in, that which I've worshipped, that which I've pinned my hopes on has failed me. Now I'm crushed and unsatisfied. This is what the self-serving pursuit of Christ does. It leaves us crushed and unsatisfied. But when we learn to pursue Christ for who he is, you cannot Be crushed and unsatisfied with who He is. He is perfectly satisfying and perfectly sufficient for all that we need. And so there is a pursuit of Christ that's actually self serving and unsatisfying. I wonder if anyone in this room can identify right now something in your heart that if you just think for a moment, maybe the Spirit of God is illuminating something to you right now that you've been. Praying you've been chasing Christ, but the, the reason you're chasing Christ is because the thing you really worship is what you're after, right here. You want Him to give it to you. Maybe it's a marriage. Maybe it's having children. Maybe it's a new job opportunity. Maybe it, all these things they're not, they're not bad in and of themselves. But when they become the object of our worship, then we become idolaters and we pursue Jesus, not because we want Jesus, but because we want the thing we are worshiping. If you identify that today, one thing, two things, a pattern, you can come to Jesus Christ and set things right today because he loves you. By the way, I told the service yesterday, just even hours before I came here to preach, I see that tendency in my own heart that we have to fight against the flesh. We have to fight against that tendency and we have to seek what the scriptures say is the healthy pursuit of Christ. So there is a way to pursue Christ that is actually self-serving and unsatisfying. We're going to close with this now. There is a way then to pursue Christ that is truly Christ-exalting and life-altering. There is a way then to pursue Christ that is not self-serving but is Christ-exalting, that is not unsatisfying but that is Life altering. Notice verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the first of seven I am statements of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John. Seven very, very powerful statements that Jesus makes about himself. Jesus uses the words, I am. In an absolute sense, equating himself with the God of the Old Testament. So when Jesus says to the crowds, you're looking for bread, the physical bread that doesn't satisfy eternally, I am the bread of life. He's saying, I am God. I am God incarnate. I am God in the flesh. I have come to satisfy the deepest longings of your heart. It's in me. It's not in the bread. It's not in the bread. The bread was just a sign. I'm the true bread. That's what he's saying. I am the bread of life. This means that Jesus didn't come to give us something primarily. Does Jesus give us good things? Of course he does. He gives us so many good things. But primarily Jesus didn't come to give us something. Jesus came to be something for us. To be something to us. To be a cherished, treasured, precious Savior. Because when we cherish him, our hearts are satisfied. When we worship him, our hearts are content. When we honor him in his rightful place, our hearts are content. This is how he made us. This is how he designed us. And so every single person in this room, everyone, every single one, everyone, myself included, every single one of us is hungry and thirsty for meaning, for significance of some kind for soul satisfaction and you know what? The kitchen renovation didn't do it for you. The, the job promotion, it didn't do it for you. You thought it would, but it didn't do it for you. There is only one way to find our lives move from death to life, from restlessness to peace, from despair to hope, from the never-ending pursuit of happiness to true and lasting joy. We don't need anything from Jesus. We need Jesus himself. We don't need anything from him. We need him. And in him, we find all our hearts have ever longed for. Jesus gives us a very precious and life-altering promise today. Are you ready for it? It's for you. It's for me. He says, whoever comes to me shall never hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Not physically, spiritually. All your heart was designed to, and to long for and to be satisfied in is in Jesus Christ. When you come to him, when you believe in him, when you cherish him, when you treasure him, you never hunger again. You never hunger for meaning. You never hunger for significance. You never hunger for something more because you find it in him. Your identity is in him. You never thirst again because it's in him that your soul is quenched, your thirst is quenched. This is a promise for each of us. This, loved ones, is the great pursuit of God. This is the path to freedom in Christ. This is what we were made for. But if you're like me, you say that sometimes you don't feel like you want Christ, right? If you're honest with yourself, sometimes you wake up in the morning, there's a a desire for something else, not Christ. You know, A.W. Tozer prayed a beautiful prayer that I like to pray often. I commend it to you. In his book, The Pursuit of God, he prayed this. Oh, God, I want to want you. I want to want you. Do you have that desire? Do you want to want him? Are you aware that so many days you wake up in the morning and you don't want him? This preacher feels that way. You wake up in the morning, you say, Lord, I want other things. My heart, as the hymn says, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. But I want to want you. Can we be a people who learn to pray that way? Lord, I don't feel it right now, but I want you. I want to want you more. That my soul could be satisfied in you. It's just an awareness that all this stuff, it doesn't satisfy It's a powerful awareness and it's a powerful prayer. Lord, help us to want you more. Help this church to want you more.